has been just excised from the rotation. So, um, you know, you're uh, they're kind of trying to figure out how all of this is going to work. And, you know, there's been a couple games where Mirtich wasn't shooting all that well. He had a big game in Sacramento. Uh, he's five of eight from three. And then, you know, he followed up with a one for four, one for six, a three for 10 and over three. And now uh, last night, or I guess, uh, yeah, on Saturday night against Charlotte, he had a six for 10 and then a five for seven from the three point line. And it was kind of, uh, you know, I, I think every Bucks player is very aware of when he's on the floor. Uh, Eric Bledsoe has been loving hunting threes for him. Those two uh, seem to already have put together a connection. Giannis knows exactly where he is on the floor and he's found him a bunch of corner threes. Like this Bucks team knows that their offense can go to another level on the nights when Mirtich is hitting threes and coming off the bench and, you know, really making an impact in those 20 to 25 minutes. So uh, they really do whatever they can to, to kind of feed him and get him going and, you know, try to get him loose. So uh, it's been, uh, I think a little bit of an adventure just because the bucks have been a little bit of an adventure as of late, but overall, I think he fits in perfectly what they're trying to do. He does fit in perfectly, and you're right. He has been up and down, but still during his time with with Milwaukee, he is uh, still a positive factor on the court. He's shooting 39% from three in these nine games that he has been there. He's a 90% free throw shooter, so basically just knocking down his uh, knocking down his shots and doing what what he needs to do in that role after the trade deadline just to keep this team strong. They are, as I said, Eric, the uh, the leading the team with the best record in the NBA, three games ahead of the Toronto Raptors uh, at the time of us recording uh, this show. But the last couple of games or the last week or so there's been a, a couple of losses there back-to-back losses against the Jazz and the Suns of course after that you know backing it up with uh, huge victories over the Pacers and the Hornets was there anything to take out of those Jazz and Suns losses that gives pause for concern with this Bucks team or is it just a hey we're at the start of March we're three games up on the next closest team and uh, maybe the foot was off the gas a little bit on a road trip um I think the biggest thing is just that you know this team is trying to figure out how to get through some injuries. Uh, George Hill is out. Sterling Brown is out. Uh, both of those guys have been, uh, I don't know if key rotation players is the right word, just because the Bucks have been pretty much able to plug and play with just about anyone this season. But uh, Hill specifically has just been huge for uh, their bench units, giving them you know a level of consistency that they just didn't have at the start of the year and uh, giving them a, a defensive identity that they didn't have at the start of the year. And uh, the Bucks overall have really suffered defensively since the All-Star break. Uh, they just haven't been able to get stops in the same way that they used to. And, you know, Sterling Brown is obviously... Uh, a big strong wing. So he helps out with that. And then George Hill is, uh, really been he's been used by Mike Boonholzer as this kind of Swiss Army knife where he's just able to use him in a number of ways, whether that's with the starters, whether that's with the bench unit, uh leading that and uh across different positions. And he has he just brings a level of competency uh from a bench guard that they just don't really have on the roster right now. They've been uh, you know, doing stuff where it's uh, no point guard lineups where they go Middleton at Dedekumbo, Mirtich, Lopez, Ilyasova. They've been, uh, you know, just trying to 
patch up those minutes and get through it. And I think it's it's I, certainly the numbers show that it's made them suffer defensively. But, you know, I think it's had a little bit even bigger impact of everyone just not feeling quite as comfortable. And then, uh, you know, you add a five game road trip to it and then you add, you know, I think a couple of tough games on that road trip. Sacramento this year with the pace that they play at and with as good as they've been is tough. And then uh, I think they got the very last very last uh, gasp out of the Lakers uh, on that Friday night. And then they go to a back-to-back in Utah. And then uh, on Monday, they play the Suns, who they just don't really take serious. And they've paid for it twice this year. Uh, So that was... That two-game uh, losing streak was, you know, the first time they've lost two games in a row this season, and it's the first time they've lost to the same team twice this season. Um, and I guess it only makes sense that in a season where the Bucks win 50 games uh, at the start of March that two of their losses come against one of the absolute worst teams in the league in the Phoenix Suns. What do we make of Giannis Antetokounmpo and his shooting? At the start of the season, it was dreadful. 6% of threes in October. He hit 14% of his threes in November, 22% in December. But since then, the numbers have really picked up. 31% in January, 40% from three in February. He's currently sitting at 36%. In March, his free throw percentage has also increased, hit 78% of his shots from the line. Has there been a noticeable change in how Giannis is shooting it? Is it is are we noticing his confidence rise up? Yeah, what's the difference here? Because it was a disaster at the start of the season. He had plenty of times where he'd go to the line he had ten times during the game and hit five or six of them and not hit a three for you know, weeks in a row. And now it's a consistent third. He's pulling up for three. This is another part of, of unlocking this Bucks offense. Do you think that it's a realistic expectation that this improved shooting from Giannis can actually stick through the the rest of the season into the playoffs or is this just one of those hot streaks that players do it occasionally go on and we're going to see perhaps a, a fade away or perhaps even worse uh, the confidence still stays up and the shots don't fall down you're really hijacking a lot of possessions well i, I think it's important to note that this season he's shooting 24.8 percent on the season and the only way that he can still be shooting that bad despite shooting that well for the last two and a half months is well, he had to shoot a lot at the start of the year. Like so the the confidence I don't think has really ever been a problem. Mike Budenholz has been obsessed with since the moment he has gotten here telling Giannis, you are shooting threes, period. This is not a discussion. You are shooting threes. And it doesn't matter whether or not they go in. And uh, there was th- this moment in, I think it was in December, where you know he was maybe at 15% on the season. And uh, there had been a couple games where he wasn't really shooting. And then one game he came out and had seven or eight threes. And everyone was just like, well, what was up with that? And he said, well, Bud told me, like, I, I got to keep shooting. And it, I think that's been the biggest thing is that, you know, they've been working on that with him this entire year. Uh, they've been working on his confidence. They've been trying to let him know that, hey, this is what you have to do. You have to take these shots. And then, uh, you know, you have a guy like Ben Sullivan who uh, studied under Chip England in, in San Antonio, has now come along with Bud. And they've really reworked some guys' jump shots before. And, you know, with Giannis, I think there's, you know, maybe some subtle improvements that have been made to it. But I think overall it's just kind of the confidence and the work that they've put in. And, uh, you know, they're trying to get it to a spot where it's a little bit more consistent because in the past, we've always talked about how, uh, you know, his jumper is kind of like a snowflake. Every single one is different. And, uh, you know, that just has, you know, it's been a little bit more consistent and it hasn't been, uh, you know, quite as sporadic in the last little while. 
Well, that is a slightly different uh, coaching um, approach, I guess, than the uh, the previous coach of the Milwaukee Bucks in terms <laughs> of uh, the confidence in Giannis shooting those threes. We're going to see how this all progresses through the rest of the season and, of course, most importantly, Eric, how everything looks in the playoffs as the Bucks look to take home court advantage through the entirety of the playoffs. Of course, Eric will have all that covered for you over on Locked on Bucks. Thanks for jumping on Locked on NBA with me. Thank you. And now it's time for us to bring in one of the hosts of the Locked On Lakers podcast. He was sitting so far away from his other uh, other co-host that took a while to get his attention to get him into the game here. Anthony Irwin's here to talk about a Lakers season, which um, are we officially ruling it uh, a lost season? Yeah, I think it's it's been... I think they lost the season. I was It's funny, I was actually talking uh, with somebody today about this, you know, important points of the season. And... A couple really stand out to me. There was a report uh, right at the beginning of Magic's tenure that said that he isn't with the Lakers on a daily basis. Um, and there was a lot of blowback when when that was initially reported. And then when I aggregated it at the time, people really didn't like that I ran with something like that. And then, you know, we come to find out that that's actually the situation, that he isn't always in the Lakers' offices and I think once that became commonly held belief, that, uh, you know, he, he lost a ton of uh, support there. And then you had the way that the Davis thing went down in that negotiation. And, and those two things, I think, really combined to, uh, to throw tremendous wrenches into whatever system they had going on to start the year. Some other news that's come out, we'll get into a bit more of a, not post-mortem, but some more discussion, but some other news that does have to be mentioned. Lonzo Ball and Brandon Ingram are not going to be playing for the rest of this season. Anthony with yep. uh, Ingram is suffering a, a deep venous thrombosis uh, due to that shoulder injury. That's obviously quite a serious scenario that you know, we have to be really careful about dislodging that, leading to you know, potentially issues um, like strokes or, or heart attacks. We don't want anything like that. But is there any parallels between this Ingram situation and the injuries and the similar conditions that caused the retirements of both Mirza Toledovic and Chris Bosch. So both those guys, they're, for one thing, they were a little older when that set in. Uh, they had more mileage, so I think that's worth pointing out. I actually, <laughs> my, my wife is a, a physical therapist. She's a doctor, and I had her on the show. I had her on Locked on NBA today, or Locked on Lakers today, and and we went through kind of the the, 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 the different factors here, and uh, their their clots uh, taking or uh, catching hold in the legs is a little bit different than them being in the arms than than Ingram's being in the arms. Uh, the idea is I, apparently that they're a little bit more serious in in the legs than there are in the arms. Uh, the the veins themselves are a little bit thicker and, and bigger down there, so the blockage itself is is a bigger blockage. Uh, compared to the arms, and and so you, it's it's not quite the same thing, but you know it's still it's kind of like saying to somebody it's a non-serious surgery as they're heading into the uh, into the operating room. <laughs> it's kind of an oxymoron here when you say it's a it's not as serious a blood clot. This is a legitimately concerning situation, and you know for for somebody in Ingram to be only twenty two and dealing with this, it's 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 highly rare it's it's hugely rare this is this is uncharted territory for the lakers 
yeah, they've got to obviously manage it, but they, they give him all that time off to you know, recuperate it. And the issue with Toledovic and, and Bosch Moore was the recurrence of, of those things, and we just hope that yeah. that's not an issue here for Ingram. And, of course, we uh, spoke about this when you were on a couple of weeks ago regarding Lonzo and that the time frame for his injury seemed ridiculously short for a grade three <laughs> sprain. Um, yeah. yeah, Most of the time that requires surgery and you know, 12 weeks, 14 weeks. So uh, no surprise that he is out for the, uh, for the rest of the season. Why do you think that they were just so... I guess optimistic in putting that out when it felt like literally no one believed that that was going to be the case. I don't understand. Uh, I actually, this was one of the, I have the, the Monday mailbag shows for, for locked on Lakers. And one of the, one of the listeners asked about that kind of thing, this trend of, of guys having timelines and, and coming back either at the very, very back end of those timelines or outside of those timelines out altogether and what what you know I come from public relations and so for for where I'm standing that the golden rule was always you tell your story and you tell it with as much truth truth as you can muster and and if you don't do that then you're opening it up for for somebody else to tell your story to you know you you open yourself up to speculation and with with what the Lakers have been doing with their injury reports and their timelines and guys just always coming back after these timelines are up, it makes you wonder is, is there a disconnect there between the, the training staff and the, and the PR department? Is there, is there a, a lack of understanding on how these actually, how these things actually go? Is the training staff itself not, not uh, equipped well enough to get these guys back within that time frame that the team is expecting them? Is it a player situation? Is it a ticket sales situation? It just it it forces you and it allows you to speculate on all these things, and those are questions you don't want asked about your organization. The other thing that's come out in the last week or maybe three or four days is that LeBron James's load will be limited. He'll be down to twenty eight to thirty two minutes. He had a triple double in I think twenty nine minutes the other day, and there might be yeah. some rest days on the back to backs. The Lakers have three back to backs uh, left here. This is not something that LeBron's ever had to do at at all really throughout his career. So obviously a different part of uh, of his um, his career and his first season with the Lakers. Is there any pushback from? portions of, of Lakers fans about how this LeBron season has gone uh, in a not a personal manner but you know, p- focusing blame on him oh well I don't think anybody associated with this Lakers season walks away unscathed LeBron deserves Le- LeBron deserves a, a ton of blame that he gets and, and Laker fans especially Kobe fans I mean you you know this yeah. you you deal with you deal with Kobe fans too and they were looking for a reason to not like LeBron. They were looking for a reason to to uh, compare Kobe's time, even at the end of his career, to LeBron's time right now as a Laker. And uh, and yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's a section of that of the fan base that that wanted to do that. I, I think what it really comes down to is this is the first year in more than half of a decade, you know, in in seven years or so. Uh, that the Laker fan base went into a season with expectations and they obviously were not met. The Lakers aren't going to make the playoffs. And what what you have as a result is you have a bunch of fans who are, who are are just lashing out in every direction. And, and then I guess the quote unquote nice thing that you can say is that there's plenty of blame to go around. And there's a lot of people who look like they deserve a lot of blame 
and and so it it kind of fits with with how people are feeling about it. But in terms of holding LeBron to a higher level of blame than anybody else, I, I really think the people who look the worst here is the front office. They put together a, a really bad roster. You and I talked about this before the season that it just didn't make very much sense, and uh, and as a result, there was a really slim margin for for error, and the Lakers went through injuries, and and now here we are. Yeah, it's exactly basically what we and many others you know, suggested with this roster that it didn't make sense around LeBron that there were players here who were skating by on reputation and what the front office was saying didn't really marry up with what we see, what the numbers bear out. There was a whole bunch of weird stuff coming out and it is really coming home to roost here. So this is going to be a very, very important offseason for this Lakers front office and franchise in general. Yep. And of course, Anthony, you'll have that all covered for everybody over on Locked on Lakers. Thank you for jumping on Locked on NBA with me. Anytime, man, anytime. Now it's time for me to bring in the host of the Locked On Raptors podcast. He's been uh, diligently managing his load. It is Sean Woodley. Sean, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, man. <laughs> now this Toronto team, of course, the uh, the buzzword of the season has been load management. Kawhi Leonard sat out as he managed his load on Sunday as the uh, Raptors got a, a big victory over the Heat by, by 20 points. How much... Um, I don't know if distress is the right word or, or grumbling is there from the, the fan base about the amount of games that Kawhi has uh, set out. Because he's, uh, over the last, I'm trying to count this up, over the last nine games the Raptors have played, he's been out for four of them. Or does winning just sort of absolve him of any uh, of any negativity? Yeah, I don't think you're hearing grumbling from anyone whose opinion matters. <laughs> if that Maybe that's a too blunt of a way to put it. But like I think most people kind of get it, right? Like you're trying to... Not only like have Kawhi be the best he possibly can be come playoff time, and he said himself like this season is about like getting ready for the playoffs. He said last weekend, I believe that he's just these are eighty two practices for him. Um, so like I think he's taking the right approach to the regular season. This team has in the past taken the regular season very seriously, and it hasn't really panned out to anything in the postseason. So I, I like to think that they're kind of you know taking a bit of a different approach to it now, where it's just like yeah, the regular season is fine. We're still going to win fifty eight to sixty games. And, you know, it's all going to be pretty easy for us because we're really talented. And also you're trying to, like, convince Kawhi to stay long term, right? And if Kawhi is in on this, which I'm pretty sure he is, is in on this with the with the, with the load management and sitting games out, uh, even when it's not back-to-backs at this point, and they're just trying to save him and, he, and he's partly to what's going on, like, what better way to, you know, try to convince a guy who might or may not be kind of a hypochondriac that you take his physical well-being seriously and is a, a and that you're a team that can be trusted with his health going forward? I think he had a big problem with the Spurs and how they tried to force him back in or whatever it was, and he didn't feel like his concerns were being heard. And the Raptors, I think, are trying to actually adhere to what he wants. And maybe they're overcorrecting a little bit, but... I think in the grand scheme of things, they're, what, 48 and 19? Like, it's not hurt them at all. And I think the team is good enough, and we've seen flashes when Kawhi's in there, that, like, they're going to be fine. Yes, maybe the chemistry is a bit of an issue, but chemistry, I think, is maybe a little bit overblown when you get to the playoffs anyway, because the entire point of playoff defenses is to break up chemistry and flow and game plans. And, you know, what usually ends up rising up is talent. And for me, I think it's smarter for the Raptors to make sure their talent is actually healthy when you get to the playoffs. Uh, 
which has been a problem for them in the past with guys like Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard. You know, he didn't play last year. Nine games. Like, it's it's a pretty big load to come back and play a full season after sitting nine games. And, you know, especially with sort of the mysteriousness behind his injury, I totally understand exactly why they're doing it. And I think if you're still mad about it at this point, I mean, you, you should probably find something more important to be mad at. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough uh, take. And I'm 100% sure that Kawhi is fully on board with this uh, game schedule and, and the way that he is playing at the moment. Of course, this won't be a concern. When the playoffs arise, he'll be playing in all those games unless there is, of course, a, a significant injury. But the, the Raptors did make some moves at the trade deadline, uh, Sean, uh, getting uh, Jeremy Lin in. But of course, the major one was getting Marcus Gasol. We've seen some issues, I guess, with the absence of DeLon Wright, which is compounded by the injury to, to Fred Van Vliet at the moment. And Lin has struggled in, in quite a few of his games as a member of the Raptors. But I first mm-hmm. want to touch on the Gasol scenario, who is being shunted in and out of the starting lineup. He, he and Serge Ibaka have alternated starting spots over the last uh, over the last four or five games. Um, his minutes are significantly lower than what he was playing in Memphis. Do you think that there is any pushback from Gasol there? Is this going to be an issue, or is this something again that yeah he is on on board with and and the matchups and playing low twenties instead of you know high thirties in minutes is something that he has adjusted to on this winning squad. Yeah, I don't know if he's like thrilled about it. I don't have any inside information to say whether he's happy with it or not. I'm sure just from what you get in terms of just like a, an impression of Marcus Gasol, I can't imagine he's not like I don't think he's like jumping through hoops that he's not playing as much as he was in Memphis. But ultimately, like this is a guy who waived a trade kicker, a million dollar trade kicker to come to Toronto. He really was happy to be traded here uh, to a place where he's going to win and not be stuck in purgatory like the Grizzlies have been the last few years. And, you know, I think it's kind of aided by a few things. Sergio Scariolo, who's the coach with the Spanish national team, he is on the Raptors coaching staff. I think him and Gasol uh, obviously have a pretty good relationship as it stands. And Serge Ibaka plays with, with Gasol as well on the national team. So they have a relationship too. So I think it's probably a little bit easier to sort of accept a role when you're among friends. Uh, so I, I think it's been pretty smooth. And I'm not surprised that Nick Nurse has been hesitant to stick with one starting five. I think most people can agree that Marcus Gasol should be the starter. He fits fixes a lot of things that have been wrong with the starting five this season, just like the lack of ball movement and the lack of sort of cohesion between Kawhi and the rest of the guys on the floor. Like there's no better way to tie all that together than a really big dude who sets good screens and passes like a, like a wizard. Um, and, and I think we've seen when he's played, like they, they have been a lot better in terms of flow and connecting every part of the offense. I think since Gasol has come to the Raptors, they have something like, they're averaging something like 29 assists a game, 28 assists a game. They've had like four or five 30 assist games since he came, which was not something we were seeing very often before uh, Gasol got to Toronto. I think it's also helped Kyle Lowry a little bit as well in that, you know, Lowry doesn't have to have the load of having to create all the time. And there's reasons to have, you know, Gasol on the bench as well and, and to sort of oscillate them back and forth. The bench has been bad. Like you said, Jeremy Lin has not been uh, as advertised just yet. He's only like two of 20 or something from three. It's been pretty rough for him. But with Gasol out there, it kind of helps ease the load of all the creators on the floor. And I think we're only going to see that improve when Fred Van Vliet comes back. We saw one game with Gasol and Van Vliet. It was against the Knicks. And they only won that Knicks game by a few points. But the bench looks like the bench lineup, the looks they were creating with Gasol in there, just kind of picking dudes out for three. Uh, it was really impressive and encouraging. So I think 
there are arguments to be made for having Gasol both start and come off the bench. I think just like there's a human argument as well. Serge Ibaka has done nothing to deserve a demotion to the bench, and I think it'd be kind of uh, a bit of an affront to him to just say, all right, we got Gasol now. Go to the bench now, buddy, and be there forever. Um, so I think we'll see the, the matchup game be played down the stretch here. I, I do think we'll see Gasol play more minutes in the playoffs just because he's more of a he's more of a suited guy to a lot of the matchups they're probably going to come across in the postseason. But for now, I, just, I think this Raptors team is kind of just riding out the string. I think they kind of know, yeah, this team has not been complete all season. There's been very little in the way of continuity, but eventually it's all going to get tied together. And eventually, you know, it, the talent's going to rise above, you know, whatever sort of chemistry concerns there might be. And, you know, the best players will play a lot in the playoffs. I would imagine they'll shrink the rotation down to eight or nine, and there'll be plenty of Gasol and Ibaka for everybody to enjoy. It's going to be interesting to see how this all pans out with these new guys and in that playoffs. But things will change quite considerably, I'm pretty sure, once this team mm-hmm. uh, gets gets cracking into the, the games that really do start to matter. Do you think there's an urgency in this team to push for the one seed? I don't get that impression. I think we kind of see, have seen that with just the... Maybe not rolling out optimized lineups, giving Patrick McCaw a start today, for example, against Miami and sort of just, sort of, just giving guys run. Um, I, I think... They have in the past been worried about their seed, and I don't think that's really a thing this year. I think a lot of the things that were wrong with the Raptors in the playoffs in years past are kind of gone now. you got Kawhi in place of DeMar DeRozan. You've got Gasol in place of Jonas Valanciunas. Their defensive deficiencies were two of the biggest glaring issues in a lot of playoff losses for the Raptors. And you throw in Danny Green and Pascal Siakam's uh, you know, emergence this season, and there aren't that, there's just not many weaknesses on the team, and it's going to be hard to exploit them in the playoffs, much harder than it has been in the, in the past at least. Um, so I, I think they kind of trust in what they have. And, you know, you, you might get burned if you end up going up to that one seed and, and by, by, the, by the bracket breaking in a way that, you know, kind of isn't very favorable, right? I mean, Milwaukee, I'm, not, I'm sure they're not thrilled about the idea of potentially playing one of Philadelphia or Boston in the second round. Um, if you could stay in that two seed and potentially Indiana stays in there, or even Philly, who I don't think the Raptors are scared of even a little bit, uh, and who personally, I that's the team I'm the least scared of in the Eastern Conference as well. Um, like, that, that might be a better place to be in that two seed to sort of be in that bracket um, and, and potentially avoid Boston, who I still think is dangerous in the playoffs, it, it, you know, once they kind of get things going here. Uh, so, no, I, I don't I don't think there's that much urgency. I think the resting of Kawhi and all the load management stuff we've heard, like that's going to continue. I would imagine we'll start to see once Fred gets back some some maybe a scaling back of Kyle Lowry's minutes as well. He's playing a lot lately and he's kind of had to with the lack of point guard depth and with Ka- Kawhi sitting games out. Um, but I do think sort of rest, load management, all that stuff that you've heard about all season is very much going to be the priority. And if they get the one seed, great. I just don't think it's really a pressing need for them. Well, of course, the Raptors will be interesting to watch as the rest of the regular season winds down, but more importantly, in the playoffs. And Sean will have everything covered for you over on Locked On Raptors. Thanks for jumping on Locked On NBA with me, Sean. Thanks, Josh. Have a good one. And there you have it, another episode of Locked On NBA in the books. Make sure you are following me on Twitter at RedRock underscore Beeble and the network at Locked On NBA Net on both Twitter and on Instagram. And while you're sitting in the car, wouldn't you tell your smart device while you're waiting for that traffic to clear to play your favorite Locked On Podcast Network show? Just tell your smart device to play the podcast Locked On and insert your team name there. Guys, we are done here. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.